0: Great. Okay, so um, here we are. We are at our weekly panel discussion. Um, For those of you who are listening out in podcast land, if uh, I sound like Brian Doak with a cold, that's because I'm not actually Brian Doak. Uh, Dr. Doak couldn't be with us today. I'm Dr. Anderson Campbell and was asked to step in. Uh, But we're going to continue on unabated because we are marching through the semester and we are marching through the Bible, and so we can't slow down now. We only have a few weeks. Uh, Left, Uh, So what I want to do today is I want us uh, to recite together the creed as we understand it and have been working on it so far together, and then I want to introduce our panelists and give us a little bit of an orientation to what we're going to be talking about with our panelists this week. So um, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you are robustly reciting the creed, This microphone will actually pick you up, and you can hear it on the recording. It's fantastic. So I want to be able to hear you recite the creed through this little microphone here. But I'm going to lead us, okay? Are you ready? So let's recite the creed up to where we are. We start out, I believe in God the the Father Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. All right, very good. I think that could probably be heard on the recording. That was really good. Uh, So that last clause... All the stuff about Jesus is what we have been talking about this week, and on Monday, uh, Dr. Doke in his lecture talked about um, how, like, there is this turn that we're making in the story, right? That there had been a particular narrative that had been uh, <clears throat> being unpacked in the biblical story up to this point about God being the creator, entrusting that creator creation to humankind, calling out a special people to be entrusted with the ongoing care for that creation, through which all of that creation would somehow be brought back into redemption, into right standing uh, with God, their creator. And that the end of the story or the place we we get to at the end of the Old Testament leaves us in a little bit of a lurch uh, because it doesn't look like that promise is being fulfilled in the way that maybe the Israelites thought it was going to be fulfilled. And then we have this turn and The lecture on Monday was very much about like, is this turn what we expect or what the Israelites would have expected? You remember he talked about the Hollywood ending. Like if we were going to write this story and like The Rock or Thor was going to like come and like save the day. And is that what happens and what would the Israelites have been expecting uh, was, was going to happen next and what actually happened through uh, the person of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. So we're gonna talk about uh, all of that today um, and maybe more. We'll just see where the conversation goes. But I wanna introduce our three speakers for the day, um, our three panelists for the day. So over here on this end we have uh, Dr. Nije Gupta, who is a New Testament scholar. He teaches here uh, both on the undergraduate campus and with our seminary students. And his area of specialty is everything Paul ever wrote or said or did. Um, or sitting thought. or thought or might have thought, <laughs> might have thought or thought about and then disregarded and didn't write down he knows that stuff too like there's a real Pauline scholar here in Greek in Greek um, we also have sitting next to him Dr. Paul Anderson <laughs> this is not the Paul that Dr. Gupta is a specialist in so it's different Pauls all right <laughs> Dr. Paul Anderson uh, is a Johannine scholar, so the, uh, the fourth gospel, and uh, he is one of the world-renowned scholars in understanding how the, the fourth gospel fits alongside these other three gospels, which you learned on Monday, there's a big term for what scholars will talk about those first three gospels as being. Do you remember what that was? Synoptic. synoptic. That's good. Say that again, synoptic. Yeah, very good. Synoptic, which means like one view. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Anderson has been pioneering uh, in a field called the bioptic hypothesis, which looks at John as sort of uh, alongside and fleshing out these other gospels, not as something uh, that's over to the side. Uh, Is that about right?
1: It's pretty good.
0: (laughs) All right. And then we have uh, Dr. Steve Sherwood, uh, who you have seen before. Dr. Steve Sherwood is part of the faculty of the College of Christian Studies um, and is sort of uh, our pastoral presence today, uh, long career in young life, and is the co-author of your text that you have been reading alongside Dr. Doak. And then I am Dr. Anderson Campbell. You've seen me on a couple of the panels so far and uh, wandering around campus looking for somebody to buy me a cup of coffee. So here we are. Uh, I think where I would like for us to start off today, if it's okay with uh, you three gentlemen, um, one of the things that we talked about, that Dr. Doak talked about in the lecture, was this idea of a kingdom, that Israel had a kingdom, they had a king, there was sort of uh, different views on what that king, who the king and what the kingdom was supposed to be, and then Jesus comes and he starts announcing a kingdom like, how would the people, the, the first century Jews, like, what would they have been expecting when they hear this kingdom idea? Uh, what maybe were we thinking that Jesus might mean about that? Like, was Jesus the king of the kingdom? Like, wh- help us understand a little bit how we can enter into the story of Jesus by understanding, or by talking about this idea of kingdom.
1: You have in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And one way to think about kingdom is the activity of God's leading. Um, you know, it's not really like a president or, or a queen or a king. I and mean, religious is challenging political understandings of God's leadership, challenging institutions, really talking about the dynamic activity of God's leading. Uh, as as uh, Dr. Doak talked about in his uh, lecture to you, um, uh, you you have challenging Roman Empire as kingdom and also challenging, you know, the memory of King David and those kinds of things.
2: So a couple of years ago, probably five, six years ago, I taught a course on Joshua and Judges. Have you guys read the book of Judges? Raise your hand if you read the book of... Did you read it for this class? No? Book of Judges... If I were to try to explain to somebody the concept of kingdom and kingship, I would start with the book of Judges, because Israel was brought out of slavery, brought in, you know, God called them to this land of Canaan, and they didn't have a leader, one kind of formal leader. It was just kind of a nation trying to get into this land, and they have these judges, which are not like Judge Judy, but they're like... Uh, they're like um, they're like military temporary military leaders that take control of the nation to help them through a crisis. And if you read this book of judges, it's a train wreck. The nation is in disarray and there are two key statements in the book. Um, no one did what was right in the eyes of God and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And there's a third statement that comes up throughout that book. there was not yet a, king in Israel. And the idea behind that in the Old Testament is Israel needed this figure, this king, who was going to bring the people together, give them direction, give them leadership, and then they could actually accomplish their goals. And without that leader, the book of Judges tells this tale of just misery, uh, backsliding, uh, you know, all, all kinds of horrible stuff happening. And it's The nation's looking ahead to having this leader, which we see in King David. And even Jesus then kind of, we see Jesus prefigured in David. So when I think of that, I think of if you ever had a meeting and no one leads the meeting and you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, you know, you can get a glimpse of the idea that what is this nation Israel without a king? And you have to remember in ancient times, kings weren't people tweeting from the Oval Office or something like that. Kings were military leaders. Think Uh, Julius Caesar, think Genghis Khan, right? Kings were military leaders. They were meant to to accomplish something with and for the people. And so when we think of Jesus coming as this kind of figure, those are the kinds of things I think about.
0: Mm. Yeah. So so Jesus uh, coming as this maybe kingly figure, he's announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it seems to be that that they would have had in mind, the first century Jews, maybe, like this military, like, kind of figure, right? Um, So how, like, how are we to understand then, do you think, like, what Jesus actually was? Because it seems like he didn't show up as that military kind of leader. Like, what, what what, what was that all about? How do we make sense of that? How did the Jews make sense of that?
3: Well, I think they were confused by it. I mean, in Mark where you're reading right now, and, and it's certainly in the other synoptics, you often have what's called the messianic secret where Jesus will do something spectacular, he'll he'll heal someone or perform a miracle and, and then tell the that person to not to keep it secret. Don't tell anyone what I've just done. And, and and it's a real kind of a mystery, like why in the world would Jesus do that? And and it seems to be that you know, he anticipates that if the crowd, you know, if word gets out too far of the power he has, they're going to want him to be that kind of king, this military sort of king. And he has a completely different agenda, right? And and I don't know if this is getting ahead of where you're wanting to go today, but like sometimes people talk about the nature of Jesus's kingdom as an upside-down kingdom. Often kind of like Anabaptist or Mennonite theologians have as sort of, you know, the upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom or the transvaluation of all values that, you know, if the world's kingdoms are military might and power and wealth and domination, Jesus's kingdom is, is love and servanthood and, you know, care for others, care for the vulnerable.
0: I think the messianic secret thing is really interesting because as, as Christians, when we come across those passages and uh, they, you know, who do you say that I am? And, uh, and he, you know, uh, Jesus heals people and then says, don't tell anybody about it. Uh, I think as Christians, we tend to read those and say, oh, it's because, you know, he's divine and they, he doesn't want people to know he's divine yet. But is that really a claim that, it doesn't seem that that's a claim that the synoptic gospels are making, but, but John seems to be making some really direct statements about Jesus's divinity, yeah?
1: Yeah, uh, John is the most different. Uh, You have the most human and the most divine presentation of Jesus uh, in in the entire New Testament. And so, you know, these are some of the interesting riddles of the Gospel of John. Um, Interesting uh, interesting thing about kingdom and messianic secret. Um, Back in uh, uh, the the first part of the uh, 20th century, um william Vreda, w-r-e-d-e uh says well this is really theological it's not really historical and so if matthew and luke built upon mark and mark's not historical there's no way to, to know anything historical about jesus and so albert schweitzer in referencing that said okay you know we, we just can't know anything about the historical jesus uh, i think though that Vreda is wrong I think that what you have in Mark, now it's diminished in Luke and Matthew, but what we have in Mark is is Jesus trying to say, I'm not gonna be a celebrity. I'm not gonna be a military leader. So he's pushing back against that nationalistic idea uh, that God's gonna raise up a kingdom and we're gonna kill those Romans, okay? Now now think about this, even some of his disciples, one of his disciples is a zealot, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, saying yes, oh, and and in, in Isaiah, Cyrus, the king of Persia, Iran, he is the anointed one, the Mashiach okay and so they're thinking oh the messiah is going to be a military general and we're going to kick the romans um, j- just like happened with with judas maccabeus two centuries earlier so jesus i think is distancing himself from that now interesting in john after the feeding of the five thousand, they want to rush him off and make him a king like moses now it's not a king like david a king like moses so that might reflect a northern perspective god's going to lead through a, a, a moses messiah not a david messiah and, and even in John 7, people in Jerusalem reject Jesus because he's not from Bethlehem, okay? The Messiah comes from the royal town, not from, you know, the uh, hinterlands. So, so, so in, in John 6, though, Jesus flees the multitude, and he doesn't want to be a king in John also. Mm. So those are ways that John and Mark corroborate Jesus, teaching about God's spiritual leadership, but pushing back against political and nationalistic associations. Mm.
2: Um, when, I, when I think about the kind of king that Jesus wanted to be, um, there were a, a lot of expectation that he would be a military leader. And I was also going to mention Simon the Zealot because Zealots would have been like freedom fighters. They want independence for Israel. And this is the main view of what salvation would look like. Israel thought salvation looked like being free from Roman rule and having their own temple, their own kind of freedom of religion, you might say. And what was interesting about what the Gospels say about Jesus is he doesn't say he's come to save them from their enemies. He says he's come to save them from their sins. This is a whole different reorientation towards what they're expecting. They're expecting freedom from Rome or freedom from oppressors. And Jesus, it's interesting, he almost goes out of his way to not make Rome the enemy. So, for example, his care and tenderness towards Roman centurions, um, his compassion for them, and even when it comes to like use of violence. There's this uh, scene. I think it's in Luke, where he tells the disciples, you know, things are going to get ugly. Let's let's collect some swords. And some people think Jesus is being sarcastic, and they say they collect two swords, and he's like, that's enough. And it it could either be like knock it off, that's not what I mean, or it could be like sarcastic, like, oh yeah, that'll work, the two swords against the other army, you know, but it's misunderstood when he says to collect swords, and then you have the scene at the arrest where Peter, you know, uses his sword, and Jesus is very clear that that's not going to be the way to redemption, and there's a scholar named N.T. Wright, you may have come across him in your readings, but he talks about, and he has this great kind of uh, deep British voice, but he talks about Jesus's kingship exists not for the love of power, but for the power of love. And so this is kind of this reorientation that we see in Jesus's kingship that comes to a climax in his suffering and death on behalf of his people and all the people in the world.
3: Can I circle back a little bit? Sure. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Anderson, your original question was partly about kind of the divinity of Jesus or not, and and how that's portrayed yeah. in the Gospels, right? Yeah, where
0: do we get that idea from, really? That, that sure. Jesus was divine? Because the the creed is affirming the divinity of Jesus. And so right. How do, how do we get there?
3: Right. I, so, as you know, Orthodox Christianity, which which probably encompasses quite a number of us, you know, believe that. Believes that you know Jesus is fully human and fully God somehow you know mysteriously within his person um, you know if you read the synoptics you you mostly get human Jesus uh, I mean that he he has power from God he performs miracles but but you don't have these kind of bold audacious claims of I am equal to God. God the Father, or God, the Father and I are one. In John, you do. I mean, and so sometimes in theology, that's called like low Christology and high Christology. You know, like low Christology is, let's really talk about Jesus' as humanness, high Christology, Jesus as God. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it, it's not devoid of high Christology, but it's a whole lot more about what was Jesus as a human. John, you get these bold, bold I am statements, you know, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection, I and the Father are one, you know, if you see the Father, if you see me, you've seen the Father, if we only had Mark, you know, it it would be hard to surmise that, you know, like, there's maybe little hints, but really John kind of brings in much more that divine gospel, or divine perspective, I think.
1: Yeah, let, let me pick up on that. Yeah. Um, it's for this reason, and other. And John is different, okay. And John has you know Jesus being the creator of everything at the beginning, so you can see why why skeptical scholars might say, "Well, wait, John's theology, not history." Now, I'd be fine with that, but John has more archaeological details, and all the other gospels put together, <laughs> it's a fact. And so that that explanation for the differences just doesn't cut it, critically and even skeptically. So, and yet John is highly theological um let, let, me, let, let me describe uh, now, now in the in mark you have confessions of jesus he is the son of god like the centurion at the cross and so you have this as a confession but jesus is not claiming that uh, he do, he does have a, a parable in mark 12 the son is sent by the father and he gets killed so you do have sonship language now when you have father-son relationship in the gospel of john i and the father are one The father is greater than I whoa what do you do with that tension I can do nothing except what the father tells me to do or say okay so one is egalitarian the other is subordination well are these two different Christologies or is there a contradiction Um, I think that we have flip sides with the same coin that coin is Jewish agency Deuteronomy 18 Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me from midst of the brothers. Listen to him. He'll speak not his own words, but only God's words. And if you reject the prophet, you'll reject God, and you'll be held accountable. How do you know it's a true prophet? The word comes true. So Deuteronomy 18 is uh, a, a Mosaic prophet agency schema that is the way John constructs Jesus and his relationship with the Father. It's not his words; it's God's word. Now i think this even could go back to the historical jesus uh he's saying no no um moses as moses predicted god would continue to work through a prophet and that is i okay now jesus is claiming to be one with the father then affects the way john's christians understand jesus as being the son of god and so this makes it into like the christological hymn we believe this about jesus like colossians 1 hebrews 1 philippians 2. you know these are worship statements and so you have john's community saying we believe this about jesus That gets added then as a later introduction to the Gospel of John, Mm. so 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 I think you have both high and low Christology early and late in John's presentation of Jesus, high Christology early stuff. Whoa, he told me everything I've ever done, or how'd you know me from afar? You know, kind of like theophany Uh, on the sea crossing. I am oh burning bush, (laughs) and Mark is it is I. Oh, thank goodness, it's not a ghost. So maybe even two different sets of first impressions between John's uh, story of Jesus coming from somebody like John and Mark coming from somebody like Peter. Okay, so maybe Peter and John had different sets of first impressions from day one. Um, now the I am sayings, though, um, okay, even though I'm a Johannine scholar, I think those reflect the, um, the John's narrator. I think it reflects the way John is preaching about Jesus mm. maybe not the historical Jesus saying I am the light of the world but in Matthew Jesus says you're the light of the world so you can't say Jesus never said a light of the world but uh, all nine of the Johannine metaphors and themes happen in the synoptics by Jesus okay like shepherd and vineyard and truth and all that so so that I think that these represent John's teachings about Jesus and then you have the confessional statement you know son of God uh, which the evangelist says that you might believe he's the son of God
0: yeah so uh, so John and and the synoptics all the all four Gospels right they give us different glimpses of Jesus and we start to knit that together as a picture but the Gospels, if we look at sort of when scholars think that things are written, the Gospels come a little bit later in the writing tradition than uh, the, m- many of the, the epistles, especially uh, the Apostle Paul's works. Uh, what, is, uh, what do we learn about Jesus from the Apostle Paul's writings? Like, what is his Christology or Christologies of Jesus?
2: Yeah, you know, our New Testament starts with Matthew, but actually Paul's letters predate the writing of the Gospels. And so, if we want to kind of understand in some ways what the earliest Christians uh, believed or wrote about, uh, we can go back to something like 1 Thessalonians, uh, which, you know, we we think, many scholars think is the very first, you know, piece of Christian writing, uh, perhaps coming from the 40s. And, you know, what we learn from Paul is um, what I call the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is treated as... Uh, overall, you know, there there's a sense that uh, Jesus is the one uh, that all life is oriented towards. So, the one of the most common phrases in Paul's letters is in Christ or in the Lord. Um, and so he'll say, "I do this in Christ," or "people who are in Christ." What does that mean? It, it means that our that Christian identity is subsumed within this person. What's amazing is that person Paul believed was a human, but also in some way also supreme, or or we might say divine. Divine language can be really confusing. What exactly does that mean? Um, one of my favorite uh, books I've read was by a professor named Professor James Dunn, and he makes the point that even in the Gospels, Jesus was a monotheist, meaning he worshipped one God. Now that's weird because Jesus is God, so it gets kind of confusing. I want to make a quick point about Mark before we talk about Paul, um, sometimes I recommend uh, movies that are make theological points. So one of my favorite ones is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. How many of you have watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Okay, it's a very theological movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And I'm going to spoil it for you, but it's very old. So if you haven't seen it yet, that's your fault. <laughs> so um, there's this holy grail, right? And Indiana Jones and his friends are in pursuit of this holy grail before the Nazis get it. And in order to kind of drink from it for eternal life, you have to, you're in this room with all these different cups, and you have to choose the original Holy Grail. And there's all different um, decorations and this and that and the other, and the Nazis kind of get there first. And they choose the most ornate, most bejeweled golden cups, thinking that this is the most divine and they drink from it, and it kills them in all sorts of horrible ways. And then, um, you know, I can't remember if it was Indiana or someone else, but they, they realize that the real cup is actually a humble, simple cup, the most humble of the cups in the room. And that is the true holy grail. And that, I think, is so important as a concept to understand how the New Testament and even the Gospel of Mark is portraying the godness of Jesus. Because we expect to look for godness in the miraculous and great. But what's amazing about the incarnation is that it reveals the humility of God and the way that he's not trying to come in all the pomp and all the grandiose um, decorations, but he's coming in this person of Jesus. Why do the Gospels do that? So if you think about the transfiguration where Jesus shines, and he only does it for these three disciples, we would think, why not he just go out to the top of the temple, shine, show himself? But there's something about how we get come to know who God is. There's a theological theory called Deus Absconditas. Deus Absconditas. You can Google it and get the right spelling. But uh, what that means is the God... Who likes to hide the Bible portrays God as the God who likes to hide and he does this in the Gospels too why does God like to hide because he wants us to pursue him because he wants to eliminate the masses who just want something from God gimme 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 and he wants the people that are going to chase after him not in some kind of dastardly tricky way But he wants to kind of be pursued so he can be fully understood. So it's those disciples that are kind of like, we don't get Jesus, we're going to keep following until we get him. Those are the ones that end up being his true disciples, not just the crowds that want more food or something else. Mm -hmm. And so when we say, where do we see the divinity of Jesus in the synoptic gospels? I think we go about it the wrong way. We actually see it in the humility of Jesus. We see that godness, that There's something different about this. In the same way that we don't always love glitzy churches, right? We might say we see the real spirit of the church in that humble community that just is poor, but they love each other. They don't have the big screens and don't have the great technology, but you can sense compassion and grace in that community. And they're givers and not takers. Um, I think that's an important part of understanding the gospel of Mark, that you actually have to seek out the identity of the God of Israel in the person of Jesus, and it's not going to be in the glitz. And I think that's a really powerful way that the Gospels portray who Jesus is.
0: Yeah, I love the, uh, the image of looking at all of the grails and having to pick the one that you, th- that you think that the Christ that you have imagined in your mind would have used, right? Yeah. Um, the groups uh, this week on Wednesday were asked to look and choose a selection, a passage from the Gospels that they think most encapsulates like Jesus, like who they understand Jesus to be. Uh, so I wonder uh, if each of us had to pick like a particular passage in the Gospels that is like, this is, this is kind of like encapsulates for me who I understand Jesus to be or what Jesus is about. What, what would your passage be? I'll give you a minute to think about that, so I'll go first because I had this question written down already. Um, So for me, I think uh, I get torn between a couple of different passages, but the one that I come back to over and over again um, is from the Gospel of John, and it's from John 15, where Jesus describes himself and his relationship to God and his relationship with his followers as that Mm -hmm. of a vine and branches bearing fruit Mm -hmm. and the Father being a gardener fact I have this like tattooed on my arm big like grapes all over like I'll show you sometime it's great one of the first tattoos that I got because like for me this is this is the, re- the like relational way that I think that we're supposed to or that I'm supposed to live out my understanding of what it means to be a follower after Christ in that passage he says remain in me and I will remain in you it talks about pruning you know, the, the the branches that produce fruit, I'll prune so that they bear even more fruit. So this idea that there's this dynamic process that's happening through our whole lives where we are being slowly shaped into the kind of branch of Christ that bears fruit for the gardener. So that's for me is uh, from the first part of John 15. What about for, uh, for you all?
3: I'm gonna go next so I can cheat, but I'm gonna go really quickly and say two. So um, sure. yes, yes. So the first is, um, for me, Mark 5, and, and Jesus' uh, healing of the woman with a hemorrhage. And, and this, this story where you know, he's on his way to heal uh, Jairus's daughter, right? And, 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 and sh- you know, he's kind of a, a name in the community. He's a big figure. This is a big PR moment for Jesus and his followers. And this poor homeless woman who's, who's had this illness for 12 years sneaks up and touches him. And, and what I love about this story, and what to me really encapsulates who Jesus is, is that at the beginning of the story, we get all these biographical details about how long she's been sick, and she's gone to all these doctors and lost all this money. Um, and, and, and later in the story of the healing, Jesus quizzes her. It says, you know, who touched me? And, and she says, well, I did. And, and it says she comes forward and tells him the whole truth. And Jesus is in this huge crowd, and he's on his way to this important event, and yet this, he and this homeless woman have this lengthy, I mean, she has a 12-year story of suffering, and Jesus listens to it. And just the Jesus, who is not the glitzy, glamorous celebrity, but who stops and sits on the curb and listens to the tale of this poor, suffering woman, I I think just tells us a huge amount about who Jesus is and who God is. And then also I I, I wrote a book of, a number of years ago about Luke 15 and uh, this, the parable of the prodigal son. I, I think also is kind of some scholars call it the gospel within the gospels of um, that the father, the father in that story who runs To be reconciled with his son and throws his arms around him and kisses him and takes off all these kind of symbols of honor and puts them on his rebellious shamed son and uh yeah so so prodigal son and and that stopping to talk with uh this homeless woman
1: thank you um i like those and i think i'll keep on with john 15 uh verses 12 to 15. So, uh, greater love has no other than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus has done for us, inviting us to do that for one another. Wow. But how about this then? Um, uh, Jesus doesn't call us slaves. He, he calls us friends because we know what he's about. We understand his leadership, and we're obedient to it. We're, 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 and we, we become partners with Jesus. There's a little story behind this. Of course, you know, religious society of friends. See, obviously, the writer John was a Quaker. You know, obviously, obviously. Uh, he was a friend. Uh, no, I mean, this is the passage that all followers of Jesus have taken in, not just Quakers. So the question is, how do we follow Jesus dynamically and authentically in every generation? Well, um, I had the privilege of going to the Vatican twice. Uh, one time was uh, a response to um, Pope John Paul, who, who had passed away. But his, his question for the churches is, could there be a, a, a day for new Christian unity? And the response that I wrote uh, that was published in a journal um, was, yeah, how about unity after the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Christian unity, you know, Christ as Lord. Let's help each other get there. That's good Catholic theology. You know, it's good Protestant and Quaker theology. Uh, Anyway, um, they they had a meeting uh, then at at the Vatican with Christian leaders, and I was invited to go to that. So I gave Pope Benedict uh, two of my books on John, on Christology of John, historical Jesus in John. A conference happened a few years later then in 2013 which was to look at Pope Benedict's writings his three books on Jesus to ask how about the historical Jesus and uh, so I was invited to go back and present there and in the last session the person that was reviewing Pope Benedict's work on historical Jesus and of course he didn't mention any any of us scholars that weren't from Germany in his three books, he only mentioned German scholars. So <laughs> it's so disappointing for all of us. Then again, maybe he just has really good judgment. <laughs> um, but what, 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 what Thomas Soding, who was summarizing Pope Benedict's works on the historical Jesus, um, his, his central slide on PowerPoint, and I, and I took a photo of this with, 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 with my camera, uh, is that to, to follow the historical Jesus, is to take John 15 seriously. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, and you know what I'm doing. So I took a photo of that, and I came back and told my students, hey, the pope become a Quaker. <laughs>
0: there
2: you go. Dr. Steve took my parable, Sorry, man. so I'll pick a different one. I would say one thing that really stands out to me is kind of sum- summing up uh, the theology of the Gospels is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, because you have you, know, you have to remember, at, at that time, uh, racism and the assumption that your ethnic in-group was superior to another ethnic in-group was so pervasive and so common to have this Samaritan, which Jews considered as kind of an aberrant, uh, kind of bad other group, to have a Samaritan go out of their way to be, to be compassionate to someone who is literally downtrodden um you know that 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 is very countercultural and yet it is something that Jesus did um speaking compassionately as Jesus did to you know a variety of different groups of people and i just think about how hard it is for us in our busy lives um to stop and show compassion i remember i was at costco in tigard a couple years ago and you know costco so big and horrible you just got to go in and get out and go home. It's just overwhelming for me. And I'm coming out, and I'm going to my car, and there's a woman, an elderly woman, on the ground in the middle of the parking lot. Like, she's fallen or tripped or something, and there's a man tending to her, and I'm walking with my cart to my... And I'm thinking, she's with someone. She'll be fine. And he gestures over, saying, come help. And I'm like, this is a Jesus moment. I'm going to have to do this. (laughs) (laughs) But... You know, in my selfish self, I have reasons why I shouldn't help. I have places to be. Costco is overwhelming. This woman already has help. But in that moment, I thought to myself, I'm responsible to be like Jesus. Um, And my conscience tells me this is the right thing to do. And I look at the world around us, and I think how few things tell us help that woman. But the Gospels tell us help that woman because of Jesus. He helped you, right? Forgive as I've forgiven. And so that, that to me encapsulates what does it mean for Jesus to be divine? It's, it means to bring out all those qualities of what who God is. And for, and for God to say to us, be perfect as your father's perfect, doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It means be the human being that you were created to be and stop and help that woman
0: good. And that kind of like tees us up for, I think we have time for like 60 seconds or less is like lightning round, right? Um, that, so we imagine that somebody has, uh, has read the gospels. They've come across the stories of Jesus. Uh, maybe they've been, uh, tracking with, uh, the lectures and the panel discussions and they're getting all this online and they're like, okay, like I'm sold like this Jesus guy, this is someone worth following and worth emulating. How do I do that today? Does somebody, what, what does somebody need to do, like in 60 seconds or less, right? What does somebody need to do to follow Jesus today? Is it believe something, think something, act some way, pray some prayer? Go.
3: Go to seminary. No, I'm
0: just Go just to seminary <laughs> with Dr. Gupta.
3: I show a class in my Bible, sur- or a video in my Bible survey classes from Seinfeld uh, where George Costanza decides he's going to do the opposite. Of everything he's ever done in his life, he is going to do the opposite, and and, and I think that's for me because my impulses are to look out for myself, to be selfish, to push others down, to push myself forward. Um, Jesus washes people's feet. You know, he if you want to be like me, become a servant. Um, look for people to help. Look for ways to to um, yeah to serve to to lift others up.
1: I think that Jesus invites Peter <coughs> and his disciples follow me and so to give ourselves to attending, discerning, and minding the present leadership of Christ I think that's central to Christ being Lord of our lives.
2: Have you guys ever seen the GIF? I love GIFs, by the way. But have you ever seen the GIF that has Shia LaBeouf and he says, just do it? And he's like, just do it. Have you seen that one where you nod your head so I don't look crazy? All right, anyway, I love that gift because it's just kind of like, oh, what should I do and how do I do it? And with this kind of thing, it's just like, just do it. Just do it. Like, I, I I, think it's this idea of like, oh, this Christianity thing, maybe I'm going to dip my toe. I might go to church once a year, and I'll just pick up this book and read it for 10 pages. And, you know, it's just kind of thing where you're like, I'm just going to just jump in, just dive in, do the Jesus thing. Um, and it's really more just a matter of I'm just going to do it. To me, it's, just, it's more a matter of that. Maybe you need help, you ask someone for help, ask any of us, or ask spiritual life folks, or I don't know, there's lots of resources here. But it's really just saying, you know, okay, I'm not going to do this half hard. I'm just going to do it, or I'm not going to do it. And so I feel like, you know, that's kind of what Jesus says. It says, drop your nets, drop your nets, and come follow me. And Abraham, you know, leave your family and come follow me. I, I You know, it sounds simple, it's hard to do, but it's just, just think of Shia LaBeouf, just...
0: Just do it. Great. Thank you all to all three of you for your participation today. Can you help thank our panelists?